0: This morning I'm reminded, reminded of the old adage about Manitoba that if you don't like the weather, just wait 15 minutes. Did anyone wake up last night in the middle of the night? I forget what time it was for me, somewhere between 3 and 4 o'clock and I opened the door and I was hit with a blast of cold air and I just thought, what is this? Because it had only been a few hours earlier that it was still sweltering heat and, and sweating. So it's pretty amazing how quickly the weather can change reminded me a little bit of our text this morning, that just like the wind and the weather systems that can change so rapidly, so too can the course of man change rapidly. So often we feel like we're set on a certain course, we're set in our ways, nothing's going to change, and then all of a sudden it changes just that quickly, and our whole course is altered. And we see that happening in the life of David. We also see that happening in the life of King Saul as we continue along in our series on David, a man after God's heart. For those of you who maybe haven't heard uh, all the different uh, parts of this series leading up to it, we've been charting the course of David from a young shepherd boy living out in the Judean wilderness watching over sheep, considered the runt of the litter by his family, overlooked for the position of being blessed by the prophet Samuel. He was overlooked uh, in his ability to fight Goliath. He was overlooked even by his older brother at that time for coming and only wanting to see a spectacle. And yet we see that through all of that, David was being shaped by God. His attitude was being shaped, his heart was being shaped, and in this time in the wilderness, God was drawing him to himself to be a man who would pursue him, be after him with everything that he had. And so now we see the the course continuing to move forward. He's been brought into Saul's Uh, into Saul's courtyard, if you will. He has been serving him with music. He's become an armor bearer, and then since slaying Goliath, the Philistine heavyweight champion of the world, he's now shot to stardom. Everyone knows his name, and he's now become a warrior in Saul's army, and everything he does is successful. Last week, we saw how this success drove Saul into a fit of jealousy. And in this jealousy and in this rage, he actually sought to kill David on two different occasions. And in this, we also come across Jonathan, Saul's oldest son, next in line to the throne, who sees something in David that attracts him, draws him to David. And we find out that that he loves him as he loves himself, and he gives him his friendship, and thereby also relinquishing his right to the throne. And so in all of these things, we see these different pieces coming together for David, and now the story continues this morning in 1 Samuel and chapter 19. Before we enter that, would you bow with me, and let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in control. That is such an easy thing to say, and yet it carries such weight. You are truly in control in control of every last aspect of our lives. No detail is beyond your notice or your concern. We see that clearly in the life of David, that there was no aspect of his life that you were not there. There was not any castaway moments or any uh, of these dangers that you allowed to come his way that were for no reason or no cause. You had a plan for him, and we see it unfolding as we have been studying through this text And so now, Lord, I pray that as we acknowledge that you are in control, even when we have to face dangers, even when we have to face an adversary that we have done nothing to, we have done nothing to wrong them, nothing to deserve their wrath, and yet they're still inflicting their their jealousy, their anger, their hatred towards us. Even there, you are in control, and you still have a plan. And so we pray, Lord, that as we look at the life of David, we could also, by your Holy Spirit, be guided into seeing how you are working in our lives. That no matter what situation we face, no matter what dangers or adversaries, Lord, you have a purpose and you have allowed it for a reason. So help us to see your hand more clearly this morning, I pray, and guide us by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the story is told of a monastery in Portugal. This monastery was in the unique situation of being perched high on a 3,000-foot cliff, which is only accessible by a terrifying ride in a swaying basket. The basket is pulled up with a single rope by several strong men at the top, sweating and straining to pull the fully loaded basket up the cliff. Now, one American tourist who visited the site got quite nervous halfway up the cliff when he noticed that the rope looked quite old and frayed. When he finally made it to the top, he asked the man in charge, how often do you change that rope? To which the monk replied with a smile, whenever it breaks. (laughs) I think that's someone's uh, philosophy sometimes when it comes to replacing parts on certain farm machineries, isn't it? (laughs) When do you do maintenance on that? Whenever it breaks. You know, when we think about something like that, we realize that there's times in life where things can be a little bit more precarious than we like. There are times when we wonder if the things that we have put our trust in are strong enough to keep us safe. And it's a little bit unsettling when we realize that many of the things that we have put our confidence and our trust in are far from a sure thing. Like that rope, perhaps the thing that we're counting on isn't foolproof, things can let us down, and we've all experienced that at one time or another. Thankfully, we're all here today, so that means that none of those things have cost us our lives. However, it has happened. And so when we realize that this life is more precarious than we think, sometimes it causes us to feel anxious, nervous, unsettled. We realize our lives are not as, as bulletproof or, or just that we're going to live forever as we thought they were. And so often we just try to push that away but there's other times where it crowds back in and we have to realize that we have to deal with the reality of danger in our life. And so how do we deal with this? How can we, you and I, honestly face these dangers and at the same time be peaceful and confident living in a dangerous world? I think I know someone who can help us with this, a man we've been studying for the past couple of weeks. He wrote these words which I think have a little bit more weight to them after we've been studying his story. Listen to what he wrote in Psalm 59 and verse 16. He says this, But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Now when David wrote these words, he knew what it was to live in a dangerous world. He was facing also a dangerous opponent, a man named Saul, who had made up his mind to kill him. Now, 1 Samuel 19 tells us how David was delivered from danger and gives us some clues about how God delivers us and how he, how he delivers those specifically who place their trust in him. Now, the first thing that I want to draw your attention to this morning is that innocence will not always deliver us from danger. Often we think that if we're innocent, if we're not in the wrong, then therefore that will ensure our safety. Many of us think that just being a good person makes us immune from the trials and tragedies of life. If we play by the rules, live and let live, try to treat everyone right, and therefore everything will just turn out okay. But we know from examples that that's not always the case. For example, the book of Job is a template on exactly that kind of thinking that it's not just those who live a righteous life who will be blessed and those who live a wicked life who will be cursed. Sometimes life is far more confusing than that, where the, the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. Sometimes things don't always seem to follow according to how we think they should. And so as we think of these things, we wonder, what then is the good of living a righteous life? What, what is the good of being innocent? And I'm sure David wondered this at many times in his life. King Saul had it out for David, that much is clear, and even though David had never done anything to Saul, it took Saul's son, Prince Jonathan, to speak up for his friend. Jonathan comes up on David's behalf when he finds out that his his father is just intent on taking out David. And so he goes to him and he tells him, David has done nothing wrong, why do you want to kill him? And Jonathan's speech seems to change his dad's mind after he's reminded of how he killed the Philistine, how he championed. The nation. And so Saul sees the wisdom of Jonathan's defense. Saul and David are reconciled for a moment and all seems well again. That is, until Saul has another one of his fits. After David's victory over the Philistines, again his jealousy comes to the forefront. The evil spirit descends upon him, and once again, third time, Saul has the spear. And for the third time, he hurls it at David, wanting to pin him to the wall. And he throws it so hard and with such venom that it says that though David barely escaped, the spear actually stuck into the wall. He was trying to make wall art of David not for the the first time, not for the second time, but for the third time. How crazy is that, that David for the third time narrowly escapes with his life at the hand of Saul. And so now David flees home. And here he's wondering, what is he going to do? And many of us in this situation would have looked at it from the outside and said well certainly david must have done something to deserve this when we see bad things happening to people we just instantly have this gut reaction that they have to have done something to deserve the treatment you know ordinary folks like us like to steer clear of danger as much as possible we figure that the farther away from trouble we live the harder it is for danger to find us we play by the rules try to try to treat other people right And then when we do all of this, then we'll be okay. But as we look at David, we ask the question, does that really work? Well, the answer is yes and no. Nobody would deny that living a good moral life will help to keep you out of trouble. Living right keeps you away from any dangers that come with doing wrong. And at the same time, doing right does not guarantee deliverance from all danger. The Bible tells us that even the righteous can expect the world to be a dangerous place. Many passages speak to this. Psalm thirty-four, nineteen says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul wrote to him, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So here we see that there's no guarantee that those who are godly and righteous are immune to the danger of this world. David was a man after God's own heart, a man God himself chose and anointed to be the king of the, of the nation, and yet for much of his life, David was a hunted man. He was on the run, living in the wilderness, in constant fear for his life. And you and I must also accept, we must accept and understand the fact that even though being a Christian, being in Christ and doing what is right, will always pay off in the end. The rewards are guaranteed, Innocence will not always keep us safe in the short term in this dangerous place because God's will is greater than sometimes we can see in the moment. There's a story told that in the May edition of USA Today, the following story appeared amongst the letters to the editor. Someone wrote this, "'Will somebody help me save my son? My son is two years old and is a reflection of complete innocence.'" His vulnerability to this harsh, violent, ignorant, and uncaring world just rips my heart apart. He has no idea what he's getting himself into. He knows nothing of the killing within the schools that are supposed to prepare children for the world. He knows nothing of the abuse that happens within the homes of children just his age. As he plays with his toys, he's oblivious to the tragedies that occur every day across this country. And as he clutches his blanket, sleeping soundly, dreaming of the mummy and daddy who love him, he has no idea of the complete social and moral decay of our, of our country today. Does anyone care anymore? Will someone please, please help me save my son? Signed, Edward Motes, Bel Air Beach, Florida. This man, Edward, understands that innocence will not keep his son safe, even though he tries his best. He realizes that he himself, as a father, will not always be able to keep his son safe, And like David, we are all threatened by dangers even when we try to do the right thing. But not only will innocence not always deliver us from danger, we also recognize that friends and the love of others will not always deliver us from danger either. It was sometime during the decade of the 1960s when the then first of the boy bands that came along, of course you know them better by the Beatles, one of their number one hit songs, one of many, was the song that had the, the hit line that went over and over again that all you need is love, love is all you need. The song, I think, still plays on the oldies every once in a while. You've probably heard it before, the line, love is all you need. And while it's great sentiment, it's you know beautiful words in their simplicity, love is all you need is something that all of us wants to just wrap our arms around and cling to that, yes, this is true in this world, that love is all you need. But we wonder, is that a true statement? David flees from the murderous Saul home to the loving arms of his wife, Michal. In the chapter just previous, we read that Michal loved David. She had a deep love for him. She had been smitten by this dashing young soldier, and they were married. And so David flees home to her embrace, But Michal also knows her dad. She knows her father's jealousy and in his rage how murderous he could be. And she gets word, she she gets the inkling somehow that the assassins are waiting outside and that as soon as David comes out in the morning, he's going to be a goner. And so she's not willing to allow this to happen to her husband. She's not willing to allow David to be killed at her doorstep. And so she devises a plan to save him. She tells him, you're a dead man if you stay here tonight. She devises a scheme. She gets out this basket. She lowers him down from the back window. Then she dresses up a statue, which may or may not have been a household idol. We're not sure on this. The word is translated idol, which raises some questions. What was it doing there? But nonetheless, she takes this statue. She places it in David's bed. She puts um, some furs up at the the head of the bed to simulate his hair, which begs the question, what did David's hair look like? I'm I'm picturing maybe Samson-esque hair, you know, if it was that kind of fur up there. But anyways, it was enough that when they ask about what, what David's doing, where is he? She says he's still in bed. He's not feeling well. And whatever it was that she had put in the bed was good enough that when they looked, it looked like, sure enough, David was there. And so the men go and tell Saul. David's sick in bed, and, and Saul, he's so in, in just enraged and so furious, so intent of his plan to kill David, that he says, pick up David, bed and all, and bring him to me that I'm going to kill him with my own hands. And so that's what they do. They go in there, they pick up the the bed and all with the statue in it, believing it's David, and they bring it to King Saul, when finally the sheet is pulled back, and Saul realizes that he's been duped. His own daughter, Michal, has duped him. She has deceived him. And so now here we see that in her actions, she has lied to her father. She has deceived him. She's not exactly a saint in her actions, keeping idols in her home, probably without David's knowledge. Then she also goes on to deceive and and lie to her father. In the end, she defends herself by saying that David had threatened her, saying, why do I need to kill you? Why do I need to uh, force you to help me? And so that's how she defends herself. But nonetheless, we see in her actions an admirable trait of standing by her husband, even in the face of her father's anger. She was willing to put herself on the line to save him. And so here we see that God used David's wife to save him the first time, to deliver him from danger. And so we ask again, is love all you need? Is it all you need to make you safe and sound in a dangerous world? And the answer is again, yes and no. You see, love is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. When we look at the love of a parent... It will move them to do almost anything to provide and protect their kids. As we read in the letter earlier, this father wanted nothing more than to secure his son's future. We've also heard stories of lovers and friends who willingly sacrificed themselves for the sake of the one whom they loved. Even Jesus himself told us this in John 15:13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. There's a story told that years ago, a young mother was making her way across the hills of the South Wales, carrying her tiny baby in her arms when she was overtaken by a sudden and blinding blizzard. She never reached her destination, but when the blizzard subsided, her body was found by searchers, who discovered that before her death, she had taken off all of her outer clothing and wrapped it around her baby. When they unwrapped the child to their great surprise and joy, they found he was alive and well. She had wrapped her body around her sons, giving her life for her child, proving the depths of her mother's love. And years later, that child, by the name of David Lloyd George, became Prime Minister of Great Britain, and without a doubt, one of England's greatest statesmen. And I have no doubt that every mother and father in this room would do the same thing for their own child. But at the same time, let's be honest, love does not always make us safe and sound in a dangerous world. Even after David escapes, Saul continues to pursue him, continues to try and kill him. Michal's love for her husband saved him from death that night, but not from the danger in the coming days. And your love for your family and friends will not always deliver them from danger either. Every year, children vanish without a trace from homes where mums and dads love their kids as much as we do. Every day, people say their last goodbyes to those they love. And yet, love cannot stay the hand of death you can love someone with every fiber of your being but you cannot force them to do what is right the heart of countless parents have broken over the decisions of the children that they love so much who they have taught to do what is right and have chosen to go against it no matter how much you love them you cannot force them to do what you want and so these things hurt they cut deeply and i'm not trying to be cruel or unfeeling here today But love will not always deliver you or the loved ones from danger any more than love could deliver David from danger. And you and I must understand and accept again the fact that love, though it is the most powerful force in the universe, it caused God to send his only son into danger's way on our behalf. Even that did not spare Jesus from having to go to the cross and to die a cruel death. And so like David, there will be times when love will only postpone the danger, not eliminate it. So if innocence does not deliver us from danger, and love cannot deliver us from danger, what can make us safe and sound in a dangerous world? What can we truly count on to, fa- to never fail us? Do we have to always just accept that we have to live in fear? Or is there another option? David discovers the answer when he finds that only the Lord can deliver you from every danger. Now, you probably knew that this was where we were headed. It was fairly predictable from the text that though people can do their best and, and we can do our best for others, in the end it is only God who is the truly safe haven. As David is running for his life from his own home, wondering where am I gonna go? Where am I gonna run for safety? The only place he can think of is the city of Rama. It's the hometown of Samuel the prophet. And here's a side note that we see that in times of trouble, the godly flee to the godly. Whereas we see that in times of trouble, the foolish flee to the foolish. And so here we see David fleeing to the godly. The one man, the prophet Samuel, who he know that he can trust. The one man that he knows that he can count on. Maybe Samuel can help him find a way out of his troubles. And so David flees to Ramah, and in Ramah he finds Samuel. Probably a section of the city set aside for Samuel and the other prophets of Israel. David tells Samuel everything that's happened, and Samuel gives David refuge. But somebody else tells Saul where David is. There's a spy in their midst, and somehow word comes back to Saul that David has taken refuge with Samuel. And so he sends out a group of his hitmen, his assassins, to go out there and get him. And that's when things get really strange in our text. Verse 20 tells us that when Saul's men arrive at Naoth, and rama samuel and the other prophets are prophesying that is prophesying is a very broad term saying they are speaking the praises the word of the lord it could have been in the form of a song it could have been the the form of of preaching scripture or speaking saying thus saith the lord whatever it is they are prophesying on god's behalf whether people are listening or not we're not we're not given this but we know that they are prophesying And so as Saul's thugs, his hitmen, come in, they're going to strong-arm their way in amongst these godly men, and they're going to take David by force. This is where things get really odd. We read in verse 20 that the Holy Spirit of God descends on Saul's men, and they too begin prophesying. This is one of the only instances in Scripture where we've been given this specific set of circumstances, where against their will, the Spirit of God descends on men and they begin to prophesy. How incredible is that, that the Holy Spirit of God could intercede in such a way that these men could not do anything other than to declare the Word of God, to prophesy, to say, whatever it was they were saying, we're not given the words, I wish we were. But to be declaring God's word, prophesying, and therefore they were unable to move forward. All they could do was prophesy. Finally, they they can't do anything else but go back to Saul and tell him what's happened. Saul, of course, thinks they're crazy. He sends a second group of men, same thing happens. They get close, they begin prophesying. They come back, say the same thing. Saul says, No way, sends out a third group of men. Get them this time. Same thing happens. Finally, Saul's just had enough of this. I need to get David. I'm going to go do it myself. These other men, you know, they're, they're just not cut out for the job. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to take him out personally. And so, as Saul is approaching the place where Samuel, the other prophets, are prophesying, he too, for the last time in his life, experiences the Holy Spirit of God descend upon him. And he too begins to prophesy to the glory of God. What an incredible thing to witness would have been to see King Saul so set in his jealousy, his rage, his vendetta against David to suddenly be overcome by the Holy Spirit and he prophesies before the Lord. In fact, we are told that he prophesies with such fervor that he removes his royal garment. He, he, un, he basically becomes completely undignified in his prophesying, and he, he, he strips himself of his royal garments, and he's prophesying before the Lord in nothing but his undergarments. And in this, we also see some symbolism. That here we see that Saul, once again, under the power of God, has shown that he has been rejected by God. His royal garments have been cast aside. He has been rejected by God as king. And yet, even here, Saul can't help but give glory to God, and he could not lift a hand against David. And so here we see the main point is that when everyone else did their best to protect David, but Saul was still intent on killing him, when he is finally cornered with no way out, it's not his innocence to protect him, it's not those around him who protected him, in the end it was God who intervened. That when there was no other way out, God delivered David and kept him safe and sound from danger by interceding and descending upon the men who had come to do him harm. Now, you might be way ahead of me here. You probably are. And you might be thinking to yourself, do you mean to tell me that God will always do some miracle to keep us safe? Will God always intervene in some miraculous, spirit-filled way to keep us out of danger? My answer, again, is yes and no. Yes, God very often does deliver his children from danger in miraculous ways. He did so in my life, I'm sure on more than one occasion. And that's why David can also sing such words as these. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him, and he delivers them. These are the experiences of David, and so he gives God the credit for his deliverance. Jesus himself commanded us to include in our prayers and deliver us from the evil one. You see, it's not wrong to ask God to keep us and our loved ones safe and sound in this dangerous world. And you and I can trust him to take care of us and protect those of us who are in his care. But at the same time, you must also remember that God does not always guarantee us protection from danger, but he guarantees us his presence through danger. Nowhere in the scripture does the Lord promise that you and I will be exempt from pain Suffering or heartache. Nowhere does he promise that danger will never touch our lives. But what he does promise is that even when danger comes, he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never leave us to go through it alone. And we see that even in the life of Job, that as he questioned God, God was there with him every step of the way. And so too, as David, so too as Job, he will be with us. And knowing that ultimately he is in control gives us the confidence to face whatever danger comes our way. The courage of Civil War leader Stonewall Jackson in the midst of conflict can be a lesson for us as believers as well. Historian Mark Brimsley wrote this of the great general. A battlefield is a deadly place even for generals. And it would have been naive to suppose that Jackson never felt the animal fear of being exposed to wounds and death. But invariably, he displayed extraordinary calm under fire, a calm too deep and masterful to be mere pretense. His apparent apparent obliviousness to danger attracted attention. His men marveled at the way gunshots and cannonballs could be going off all around them, and there stood Jackson, unfazed. They gave him the nickname Stonewall, because he was like a wall in the face of fire. And so... After one of these great battles where all of the other men gained their courage from him being unfazed, someone had asked him how it was that he could stand so unfazed, so un- unconcerned in the face of imminent death. And his reply was this My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God knows the time for my death. My Bible says that he has seen every day of my life before one of them came to be. And so I do not concern myself about when my death may come, but to always be ready, no matter where it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally as brave as I. This is a great example that we see in this general, and I believe we see the same example in David. He had a complete confidence and trust that God had seen him before he had even been born. In Psalm 139, David wrote, Before anyone else knew me, you knew me. You saw my unformed body. You saw all the days of my life before one of them came to be. Those are the words of David. David knew that God was in control of his life. He had experienced his deliverance, and so too we can put our confidence in God. Let me close with this great poem that I know many of you have heard before. God hath not promised skies ever blue, flowers strewn pathways always for you. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But he hath promised strength from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. My friends, God will not always deliver us from danger. But we can rest assured that when danger comes, when we put our trust in him, he will deliver us, he will be with us. To whatever end. David discovered this to be true. He was still a man on the run, fleeing from the wrath of King Saul, but David knows that he is in the hands of God. He knows what you and I must also know and remember for ourselves that it is only as we put our trust in the Lord that we can be free from anxiety, free from the fear of this world, knowing that God is in control and that so long as we are in his care, we are in the safest possible place that we can be. And so my question for you today is simple. Are you trusting him? Are you trusting that he is in control of your life and the lives of your loved ones to whatever end? That is his desire for each one of us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that once again we can affirm you are in control Thank you, O God, for what wonderful confidence, what wonderful peace and assurance that can give to each one of us as we go through a, a life and a world that is filled with so many different dangers, so many different things that can go wrong, and just when everything seems to be going right, we get hit with something just out of the blue. And Father, so often we look at this and it fills our hearts with anxiety, fear. We don't know the future. We don't know what it holds for our children But God, we know that you hold the future. We know that you are in control. And we know that one day we will see you. We know that one day soon all of the wrongs in this world will be set right. We believe that one day soon the trumpet shall sound and we will see you, the Lord, descending from above. Just as you left, you will come in the same way. And this time you will come for your children. And you will come to set all things right and establish a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, and no more death. And we look forward to that day, O Lord. We long for that day. And so we pray, O Lord, that until we are living in the reality of that day, help us, O Lord, to be confident that that day is coming. And so, Father, give us peace and give us assurance, even in this troubled world, for we know that though in this world we will have trouble, we can take heart, for you have overcome the world. You've done it through the sacrifice of your own Son on the cross. Thank you, O God, that in that we have every assurance that we are in your care and that one day we will be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.